you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Why are you so afraid? I think many of us have grown up hearing that phrase from our parents. What are you so afraid of? But even as adults, I want to ask us that question. What are we so afraid of? What is it that we fear most right now? Is it something you've never shared with anyone else? Not even your spouse? Is there some dark secret that you're afraid of ever being exposed? Would someone finding out make you afraid? Psychology Today listed the top 10 fears that hold people back. And here's what made the list. Number one, change. Number two, loneliness. Number three, failure. Number four, rejection. Number five, uncertainty. Number six, something bad happening. Number seven, getting hurt. Number eight, being judged. Number nine, inadequacy. And number 10, loss of freedom. Now, every single one of these are legitimate fears that people possess. And as defined in secular terms, they're a natural feeling of alarm caused by expectation of imminent danger, pain, or disaster. Every single one of these, though, also has a remedy found in the Word of God. If your fear is not on this list, let me say clearly that Scripture has an answer and a remedy for that fear. There's a bad type of fear and a good type of fear. I'm hoping this morning that we can clarify that. The title of the series is Navigating Through the Chaos. And my prayer is that you will be honest enough as we go through each session to see what it is that God wants you to deal with specifically in your life. Be honest enough to admit this morning, what is it that you fear? And whether or not we've given it enough time as to how it affects our very lives each day. We'll be looking at particulars when it comes to fear and wrap it up with the biblical application. We're going to be looking at three things specifically. Defining fear, number one. Number two, illustrating fear. And number three, overcoming fear. Number one, defining fear. You see, one of the most important things one can do when using any word is to make sure that they define the word correctly. Unfortunately, what happens with many things that we study or observe in Scripture, because we don't dig deeper into the text of Scripture, we're left with very little understanding of the deeper meaning of the original author of that text or that language. Today, it's my goal to attempt with some precision to define the word fear as used in Scripture. As I was preparing and digging through the Bible dictionaries, I came across meanings such as this one from Holman Bible Dictionary. Here's what it says. 
The English word fear is used to translate several Hebrew and Greek words. In the Old Testament, the most common word used to express fear is yura, which means fear or terror. Found in Isaiah 7.25, Jonah 1.10.16. In the New Testament, the word used most often to express fear is phobos, which means fear, dread, terror. Matthew 28.4, Luke 21.26. What happened for me is I was getting a little bit frustrated wanting to make sure I define the word accurately when it comes to fearing God himself. I've heard everything from you shouldn't be scared or afraid of God to, of course, you should be terrified. Don't you know what happened to those that weren't? To fear God is specifically just a reverential awe, and we are to have that for him and his majesty. As a student of scripture, it can seem to be an easy task in our Western culture to simply define the word with a definition and let the definition help guide us along except when our definition is not drawing from the original author's intent. In this case, specifically the Holy Spirit's intent, but through human means, authors. After searching through out quite a bit of commentators, Bible dictionaries, I came across an amazing excerpt from a book that I ended up purchasing online. The Living Words by Jeff Benner. So I'm just going to directly quote from this book. Here's what he says. By the way, he's a Hebrew scholar, understands the original language. He says, fear is an abstract concept, but the Hebrew words translated as fear have a more concrete definition behind them. The first root we will examine is pahad. Fear, pahad, came upon me and trembling and caused all my bones to shake. Pahad, a verb. In this verse, the word fear is the noun, pahad, meaning shaking, while the word shake is the verb, pahad, meaning to shake. The, secret, the second Hebrew root is yara. In the following verse, we will see that this verb means fear in the sense of what we would consider fear. And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I feared, Yara, because I was naked and I hid myself. I think this goes beyond just a reverential awe for God when you realize what you've done. In the next verse, we see the same Hebrew word in a more positive context. You will revere Yahweh, your Elohim, and you will serve him, and in his name you will swear. Deuteronomy 6.13. Listen to what he says here. Many would conclude from these two passages, this Hebrew word has two different meanings, fear and reverence. This assumption is made with many Hebrew words, but this is caused by an understanding of the Hebrew vocabulary from a non-Hebraic perspective. Each Hebrew word has only one meaning, but can have different applications. The literal concrete meaning of yara is the flowing of the gut, which can be applied to fear or reverence. Have you ever been so scared or been in the presence of something so amazing that you could feel it 
in your gut. This feeling is the meaning of this word. The Hebrews were a very emotional people. And in many cases, their words are describing a feeling rather than an action. This is the living words by Jeff Benner. Now let's illustrate this and what he states here by looking at some passages of Scripture. There are many, but we'll especially begin by looking in Luke chapter 12. Number two, illustrating fear. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, what Jesus is doing here is showing the disciples that they should not be afraid of man, but rather fear God. And the way he breaks it down is very important for us to pay attention to. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus warns the disciples of hypocrisy that's found in the Pharisees. In fact, he mentions the particular, particulars in the previous chapter. He lists certain things that the Pharisees did that were very hypocritical. And I want us to pause for a moment and stop pretending that only others are Pharisees. And start realizing that we as believers have many of these tendencies ourselves. Here's the first one. Looking clean while internally greedy. Looking the part as a saint, but really when it comes down to it, looking only out for themselves and always wanting more. Here's another one. Judging others unfairly while setting yourself above them. Finding the flaws in others' walk with God while neglecting to see how you measure up to the standard of Scripture yourself. Here's another one. They wanted the pat on the back from the others to feed their pride. The praise of men matters a whole lot more than the favor of God. And truth be told, church, many of us fall into that trap. We care a whole lot more that people praise us than the Lord himself. They also expected unreasonable religious demands of others. And they don't help them in any way lift their burden. A very common practice by many in the church who point the finger and would never dare to help the ones that they point the finger at. 
They would not help the ones that they're accusing of being out of line. What's another way that they were hypocritical? They didn't give access to the truth to others because they themselves were destitute of the truth and not able to enter the kingdom. You know, it's a very scary thing that what's going on right now in Christian circles. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the deconstructed Christian movement that's going on. But these people ultimately don't realize how pharisaical they are. They're denying their faith and leading others to hell with them. It isn't enough for them to deconstruct their faith. They need to bring others with them in their deconstruction. Essentially, it's blasphemy that they're pulling people into. They hurt others who look up to them by revolting against the truth that they so clearly had revealed to them. Which is one of the reasons why you'll see this in many churches today. Many in my generation have grown up in Christian homes and flat out reject Christianity. And they don't just reject it. They have an animosity towards it. There's a vile hatred towards the faith that they were brought up with. And many times it is because people weren't good examples. But if your faith is in the performance of others, your faith was never in the right person to begin with. The church has done a great disservice to the kingdom by doing things that God is absolutely opposed to. Unfortunately, many who oppose the church and the teachings of Scripture go to the other extent to bring others with them in rebelling against the faith. In fact, the last thing that is mentioned in the previous chapters, they're hostile and provoking with their questions, only seeking to entrap. Many who only seek to question what Scripture says about topics They don't even care to know what it really says. They don't even agree with what Scripture states. They have to rework it to their working definition. Which is why many churches today, when you're saying that some things are a sin, will come right out and say, where does Jesus mention that topic? What they're essentially saying is, I'm picking and choosing what I want to apply out of the Word of God. Church, all of this is the living, breathing Word of God. You and I don't get to pick. You see, Jesus in this chapter in Luke is encouraging the disciples to be bold in sharing the truth with others. Especially because they're going to need to be bold when Jesus ascends back to glory. He calls them his friends. And tells them not to be afraid of those that can bring death upon them. It's very clear why Jesus makes this statement because many of the disciples face death. Let's not forget that these words that Jesus speaks to the disciples had real meaning in their life later on. We we literally divorce many things in Scripture from the real context and the follow-through later on that happens in these disciples' lives. When he makes these statements... I can assure you, church, that when his disciples are facing certain death, they remember this conversation.
Anything that man can do to bring death upon them is only a temporary limitation. Whereas the judgment of God has eternal consequences. Fear is to be directed by reason, not mere emotion, church. Fear may be emotional, but there has to be a reason behind that emotion. Else we'll be pulled in different directions and what we should fear at what time. We'll turn on our TV screen and the latest thing they tell us to fear, we'll fear that week. When we let our emotions be directed without biblical reason, our fear will, our fear will be misguided to our detriment. The thing that we ought to dread will be wrong. And Jesus encourages disciples to not be afraid of man because everything up to death is not to be feared because it ends with a termination point. Eternity is forever. Everything on this side of eternity ends at some point. Eternity goes on. Fear him, Jesus says, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Eternity is what should be on each of our minds and stir our emotions because it connects to an eternal God who loves and cares for us, church. Everything outside of God is not worth fearing because God should be the one who catches our attention. Why? Well, here's how Jesus balances the equation out for us to understand. Because God cares for the smallest details, we don't have to. What does he say next? Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He's speaking to his disciples. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Should I fear God? Absolutely. Realizing that I'm one of his children. And he cares about me. The best way I can illustrate it is this way. Have you ever seen somebody that's older than you, and maybe when you were a child growing up, who fought a case on your behalf? They were upset at you about something, but when it came to others picking on you for the same thing, they stood up for you. You wouldn't want to be in opposition to them. They were bigger than you, stronger than you, tougher than you. Think of it at a magnitude infinitely greater. The God of the universe who has every right and ability to crush us at any moment holds us in his hand. And he cares. And we're his children. And the thing that we ought to fear is when we disappoint our father. And we hurt his heart. We're precious to him. Now, if you're on the other side of that equation, that fear has to be a lot different. 
Because if you're not his own, the absolute devastation of judgment should terrify you. Do not be swayed away by people that say God is love and he's perfectly fine with you living the way you want. He doesn't even need you to believe. That's not the gospel. That's not what the disciples that he's told this to died for. It's important to never divorce the context of Scripture from its original meaning. Listen to these texts of Scripture that illustrate this point that Jesus is making. Psalm 118.6 The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? As Joshua was about to go into the promised land, directly from the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Here's a New Testament encouragement to us, church. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why? So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know why we can be content? Because God has it all under control. When we're not content, we don't believe Him. When we're not content, we think He's lying. When we're not content, we think we know better. Yes, it is a terrifying thing to fall under the eternal judgment of God. But you don't need to fear in that way if you are one of His. That relationship is very different. You're in the family of God. It's very different. The reverential awe that you have for God should shake you like it did Isaiah when he saw the holiness of God. Oh, there's a dread that comes with it too. Knowing that you are unclean standing before a holy God. And that Christ's righteousness is placed on your account. You, wicked sinner, are declared holy. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's something Isaiah didn't get the full picture. The writer of Hebrews connects those dots. Which is why we need to properly apply all of this in overcoming fear, which may have been misguided and dangerous for us. Number three, overcoming fear. So when we're honest with ourselves and willing to face our fears, yes, even the ones we refuse to tell others, the question is, how do we overcome those fears? It's one thing to say, I have a problem. I think all of us 
could go to an Alcoholics Anonymous together and go, my name is Roman and I have a problem. But if we don't have a solution, we have nothing. All of us can admit we have fear. But if we don't know how to overcome that fear, it'll cripple us in this life. And unfortunately, it cripples many to death. Let's go back to some of the things that were mentioned from the outset that many struggle with. I'm just going to go right through the list and show you that Scripture really has an answer to every single thing that we may fear. Number one, that was mentioned as one of the things that people fear most is change. Is that not true? Is that not true? It's amazing how many of us are afraid of change. It's absolutely natural for all of us to be opposed to change in our lives. And many of us are afraid to the point of anxiety, and it ruins our lives. But how do we overcome this fear? You go to the only thing that never changes, Christ found in the Word of God. You found Him in His Word, and you continually find Him in His Word. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a world that constantly changes, there's one that never changes, and that's Him. His word never changes. He never changes. He's the only constant in all the universe. What he's promised you and me, he will fulfill. There's nothing and no one else that can guarantee what God can guarantee. This is a truth that we can bank on knowing that we have Christ who will care for us faithfully. I love that text of Scripture that says he never sleeps. We all need rest. The Lord himself does not need rest. In the sense of not watching his own. He took rest, but he didn't need it. He rested from his creation. But he ultimately never sleeps or slumbers. Number two, here's a big one. I think many in the church deal with this and they don't want to admit it. Loneliness. I think many in the church that seem to have it together are quite lonely at times. Now I want you to know, church, that as popular as King David was, he felt quite lonely. In fact, Psalm 42.11 says this. This is David writing from his heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? David answers his own question. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. In your struggle with loneliness, and my struggle with loneliness, there is a God who understands it all. And He's the one that lifts up the lonely. He gives them identity in Christ. 
he gives us something to look forward to. And he tells us that we will never be alone. We will not be forsaken. Number three, failure. If you're a big type A personality, this is your fear. I've gotten this far, I don't want to lose it. But you can't tell which one I am. I don't want to lose it. I've worked too hard for this. What will people think if I drop the ball here? The only failure we should fear as believers is failure to live out what God has called us to. Because the truth is, if I know enough of the word of God, I know that the righteous man still falls. And he gets back up which means failure is part of the process. So many are afraid of failing, and that's why they do it all in their own strength and expertise. God, I trust you in all these other areas, but this one, let me deal with it. I got this one figured out. I don't need your help. I don't need Proverbs to tell me how to deal with my money. I know how to deal with this. You and I find ourselves in a mess. And instead of going to the right advice, we find the wrong advice. And we sulk in our self-pity parties. Because we realize that failure is a big deal in our lives. And our identity was found in the wrong things. God has gifted you and I in certain areas, but he didn't do so with the assumption that you are now all you need, and you no longer need him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I know many of us are familiar with this. Those of us that trust in our own strength, here's our verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with every fiber of your being, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. truth is, we have to look to him. Stop looking to ourselves. Number four, I mentioned this before, a fear that many have, rejection. Rejection. Listen, church, if there's one thing that the Savior is probably a lot more familiar with than any of us have in common with any of our friends or family members, is rejection. He's very familiar with it because at the time of his death, his friends deserted him. The time you need people the most, they're nowhere to be found. And you and I have probably gone through these moments in our lives and go, the time I needed the church to be there, they were nowhere to be found. The pastor didn't call, the deacons didn't visit, my family didn't call, nobody showed up when I was hurting. And it may be very true. And it's painful. But you have a Savior that knows exactly what you're going through. 
And let me give you a hint as to how he responded compared to the way we respond. Very different. When Peter outright denies him, you know what Jesus' response after he sees Peter again? Restoration. Let's restore this relationship. What our response is many times? You weren't there? See ya! I'm done! I'm not talking to you again! You've already failed me! Church, sometimes we need to pause and think through what Scripture says. And not go off of our emotional fear of rejection and our pride getting in the way. And listen to what Isaiah 53, 3 says. Because the truth is, you and I were the ones that rejected him originally. Isaiah 53, 3 says this. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It hurt. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. We essentially didn't think he was worth looking at. There was nothing beautiful about Jesus to us originally. And unfortunately, many of us come to saving faith, and we treat Jesus like this as well. We don't value what he's done for us. Thank you very much for eternal salvation. I'm done. I'm going to live on my own. I'm in the kingdom. I'm good. You did everything you needed to do, Lord. I'm done. What really struck me as I was thinking about rejection, and the fear of rejection, which so many of us have, is that we are faced with this fear when we have this fear of rejection, we look for acceptance in all the wrong places. Because we're so afraid of rejection, we go to the people that will accept us, even those that really will put us on a track that's even worse. Which is why the bad crowds get many of our kids when they get older. Because they're finding acceptance in those groups. And we still reject the one who knows and cares genuinely for us without hypocrisy. Number five, uncertainty. If there's one that I think everybody probably has a fear of, is the uncertainty that we're all facing right now in this country. I think this one's on the screen 24-7 pretty much. Do we know what's happening next year? No. Do we know what's going on in this country? No. Do we know what will be going on next year? We have no idea. Lots of uncertainty. Lots of fear. This fear should be red redirected to God who stands above it all. And by the way, church, here's a reminder for you. I know you know this, but he knows the beginning to the end. He knows it all. Isaiah 40, 28. I love this verse. I memorized it in the King James, but I'm going to read the New King James today. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? 
His understanding is unsearchable. What are you so worried about? Of course it's uncertain. You're putting all your faith in the wrong people. God already has it figured out. He already has it under control. Here's another one. Number six, something bad happening. For every believer that is afraid of something going wrong, I want to tell you, church, there is a promise from the Word of God that everything that does go wrong still works out for our good. Can you believe it? Everything that even does go wrong works out in our favor. Romans 8.28. I'm sure you're hearing this for the first time, right? Your first exposure to the most quoted text besides John 3.16 in the church? Romans 8.28, what does it say? And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose. He's working all things for good. All those ingredients that you have in a cake that you bake, the ones that you probably would never taste on their own, He's working all those ingredients in your life for your good. Even the bad things, even the things you're so scared of, will ruin you. He's, ruined, he's using that for your good. Number seven, here's a big one, getting hurt. Getting hurt. This can be a fear of getting hurt physically or even emotionally. This fear is difficult to overcome because as a believer we tend to think many times that we're the only ones that have been hurt as bad as we have. Nobody else has been as hurt as I have. Nobody understands what I've been through. Nobody knows the sleepless nights and tears that I've cried. Oh, there is one that knows. He's very familiar. So much so that he's there to comfort. And he sends us the Holy Spirit who is the great comfort. We have a Savior that went to the cross and left it to the Father's will and endured the real anguish on our behalf. You don't think there was real hurt before he went to the cross? You don't think there was real hurt on the cross? 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, here's what it says. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. Here's an important truth, church. You need to pay attention to this next phrase. It's not there by accident. Leaving us an example. That you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes... 
you were healed. His hurt became your healing. Church, it's natural for us to fight back when someone does us wrong. Christ left us a better example. Number eight is a big one in the church. It's out in the world, but it's in the church as well. Being judged. It's a massive fear that many live in. What are people going to think if I walk up and say hi? What will people think if I walk into church and I haven't been there in six months? As much as we're always concerned about what others think, this is where the, man of, the fear of man is out of place. And the fear for God should replace that. You should be more concerned how you've broken God's heart than you walking into church and unacceptable to others. Your fear is misguided there. Which is one of the reasons why many people go, well, I don't want to go to church. They're full of a bunch of hypocrites. You're right. Well, that doesn't give you a pass to not go to church because Scripture recommends that and actually commands that, that you be in fellowship with other believers. The real hypocrisy is pointing it out in others and not willing to face it in yourself. Truth is this, church, if we care ultimately about judgment from others, we need to double-check to see if that is the highest fear and not God. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things that I think is most freeing for a believer that finally God pulls out of sin that they've been struggling for years on is they have a freedom that they should be able to live in. And if others want to judge them for it, let them. If you've been made clean, if you've repented of sin and turned away from it, you have no judgment to worry about. And if others want to feel, make you feel that you have something to be feeling guilty over, you don't need to worry about it. And if there's a guilt that's associated with something that's not sinful, then it's wrong to begin with. There should never be a judgment of whether you put a certain amount in the plate or not. It's not a biblical standard. There should be no judgment based on the fact that you dress differently than somebody else. The real judgment is something that God does in our heart. And I think some of us need to go to the Father with the attitude of the publican many times and not the Pharisee that we pray these prayers in our churches. Simple. Be merciful to me, a sinner, is all God needs sometimes. And thanking him for how wonderful we are and how great we are and how much we give to the church and how much we serve and this and that. God doesn't care about any of that. He's not impressed with our pride. He wants humility from all of us, whether you've been in the church long or not. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, that's the word for fear there, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. There's an emotional response from a biblical worldview in approaching the topic of judgment by others. It should scare us that we are to give an account to God himself. So much so that that needs to be such a priority that everybody else's judgment pales in comparison. Number nine. Here's a big one in the church. Inadequacy. Inadequacy. So many Christians live in this fear. And a disciple of Jesus for years, but still feel quite inadequate and, and live in this inadequacy. The truth is, church, newsflash, you will never be enough. And that's perfectly fine. Because he is. Let me say that again. For those of you that are shocked that I said that. You will never be enough. Because he is. So quit living in that fear. In Christ, you have everything that you need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of you that are feeling inadequate need a little boldness in your life. And you can boldly approach the throne because of what Christ has done. Not because you have anything to offer. We don't. But you boldly approach the throne because Christ has already offered the sacrifice on your behalf. That boldness needs to be there, believer. We're cowards many times because we have been tricked into thinking, because we're not enough, I can't do anything. And you're right, without Christ you can't. But if you're in the vine, as we've been talking about recently... You can. Because the truth is, Jesus in that statement also made the statement, without me, you can do nothing. But any branch that abides in me can bear fruit. That's the beauty of that text. And number 10, loss of freedom. Now, this is a touchy one. Seems that freedoms are being lost around the world in different ways. How should disciples of Jesus Christ respond to this if that's a fear that really is gripping a lot of our society? The truth is the world's idea of freedom is different than the believer's idea of freedom. The world's idea of freedom is the ability to sin in any way I should choose with no restrictions. 
The disciple of Jesus, freedom is Christ and freedom of not living in sin any longer. The fear over the loss of freedom should be realigned with the proper fear of making the best use of the time that God has given us. Listen, church, I'm, I'm here to shock you a little bit. Freedom is not promised in Scripture. I know we're used to it as Americans. I know that's what our founding fathers fought for. I wholeheartedly agree with their assessment. The promise of freedom is not to be found in Scripture. So many Christians need to make sure that they're aligning properly when they have a fear of the loss of freedom in the society. You see, we're not used to that, which is why we vote for certain candidates thinking they're going to change the whole landscape for us. They're going to give us back our lost freedoms. We put too much stake in that. Here's what Paul made a priority to Timothy. He says, in 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 4, he says this, And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, this is Paul being a disciple maker, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul doesn't stop there. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You and I, with our fear of the loss of freedom, are fighting the wrong battle. We're in a different army entirely. Our priority isn't America first, it's Christ first. It doesn't mean we don't care for our nation. We absolutely care for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We do what we can to protest things that are unlawful and unjust. But our first loyalty is to Christ, who has enlisted us in his service. Unfortunately, so many of us are so caught up in being citizens of America, we've forgotten that we're citizens of heaven. This whole world is not my home thing, you might want to remember that. I'm just a passing through. Yeah? Have we forgotten? Your aim is for something greater than simply freedom, believer. In this life, your aim is for eternity. That's where freedom is really found. That street of gold, that's freedom. The saints that have gone before us, and we get to rule and reign with Christ, that's freedom. Everything on this earth will rust and corrupt, and any of the freedoms that are given to us will be taken away. You can bank on it. So in conclusion, church, this is my final question to you. Are you living in fear? Are you living in fear? Are there things that you're afraid of just like the rest of the world is that we've mentioned? 
Maybe your faith is misguided in some way. Maybe you're fearing the wrong things and not the right who. Maybe your focus is, I'm afraid of things that are going on around me and I'm not fearing God himself. Maybe a lot of your fears simply boil down to a fear of man. Whether it's judgment from others, feeling inadequate, even rejection, as was mentioned earlier. Listen, believer, your faith is stunted when you fear. Your growth is stunted because it's caused you to fear man rather than God. Your emotions are running toward danger. You're not filling your mind with the fear of the Lord, which will give you wisdom in these difficulties that you and I are facing. Let me promise you one thing. If you don't live in this book, your life will be full of fear. And not the healthy type. There's a text in Scripture that I find really interesting that I think it's David that writes it. This poor man cried because he's afraid. And the Lord heard him. The reality is you may have all the possessions in this life and still have a fear that grips you. If you're lacking wisdom, it's something that God is willing to give anyone that asks. James clearly spells that out. You're saying, I don't know how to navigate things in life. Well, God has a wisdom that is found in his word. And that starts with a fear of him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you're not going to live wise. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're watching this online, your fear should be different, because you have something to truly be terrified over. If you don't know Christ... The warning back in that text that Jesus gives to his friends, that is a real fear you ought to dread, and that is the power to be cast into hell. His own he will not do that to. But those that are apart from Christ will be cast into hell. There is a judgment awaiting. But those of us that are his children, we are precious to him. He cares about every single one of us with all our mishaps and ugly tendencies and sinful behaviors. We're valuable to him. Your awe and reverence of God will give you pause as you have a healthy fear of the holy God who gave you and I life.